Welcome to RUF. Glad you're here. Uh, my name's Austin, for those who don't know me. Uh, I'm the campus minister here, and what we like to do on Wednesday nights is just create an environment, have a place where people can open up the Bible, where students can open up the Bible and consider how God's Word might influence or impact their lives. Uh, you don't have to be a believer to be here. You just have to be uh, someone willing to come and listen, but we're glad you're here regardless of where you're at spiritually, and I'm excited to dive into this text. We started our series off with Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at Hebrews 11 throughout the whole semester, and Hebrews 11 has about 25 characters that the author of Hebrews mentions that by faith did something, by faith did something, and it's really him holding out to us these examples of these heroes of the faith, encouraging us, as we looked at last week, to continue to endure in the faith. So this week, we're going to look at Cain and Abel. It'll be interesting. I don't know um, how clued into the news y'all were, but I'm sure a lot of y'all remember in 2019, the like college admissions scandal that was going on, where uh, a guy named Rick Singer was helping really wealthy people get their kids into college that didn't actually have like the merits or the grades to get into college. Uh, I think it was Lori Laughlin was one of those involved. She was uh, a foundational figure in my childhood, watching Full House and stuff like that. With my sister. Um, but anyway, what Rick Singer helped these wealthy families do was basically cheat their way into college. They knew they couldn't hold up their own merits, and so he had people take ACTs for them, fake test takers. He would have kind of small sports coaches uh, at these schools take these kids as scholarship athletes so that they could get in. But they wouldn't even play the sport. He would just pay those coaches off. He would bribe them. And, uh, of course, he would have, like, fake applications and fake resumes. And everybody was really upset when the story came out. Like, of course they were upset, right? It kind of exposed the dark underbelly of the wealthy, the privileged, and how they always get more than those who don't have the means. What am I getting at with this as we start our discussion on Cain and Abel? I think in a lot of ways— This story about these people trying to get into college, but they know they can't get in on their own, so they have to create a cover, is really just an explanation of what it looks like to be human. What it looks like to be human. In reality, we know that we are lacking. Maybe we can get into Ole Miss. Maybe we can get into a lot of other universities. But there is a fundamental sense in which we realize and we know at our very core that we are lacking something. And we have to cover it. We have to cover it. We have to put an offering up so that we can be accepted. Standing on my own merits is not enough. There has to be something that I have to bridge the gap between who I am and who I should be. And so that's where we get to Cain and Abel. So we're going to look at Cain and Abel in three different points tonight. The refused sacrifice, the accepted sacrifice, and the better sacrifice. So let's look at that first one. Um, What I love about our series this semester is we're going to go through a lot of Old Testament stories that are kind of famous. And if you are anything like me, like I didn't grow up in the church and maybe you you get around the Bible and you feel like you're expected to know a lot of these stories when in reality, like you don't know the details of it. And so I'm excited for for y'all who uh, aren't familiar with these stories to go through them. Cain and Abel being a really foundational story. But even if you're a Christian and you grew up maybe talking about Cain and Abel, 
Uh, I don't know what VBS talks about Cain and Abel, but um, maybe you had some VBSs that put a childhood spin on Cain and Abel. Um, I want, I'm excited for us to really dig into the depth of these stories that are rated R. You know, they're not, they're not for kids anymore. So let's figure out what's going on here. Uh, just a little bit of context before we get into the details of the story. The story comes on the heels of Genesis 3. And you have to remember, in Genesis 3, the world changed. It kind of flipped on its axis. Because here was Adam and Eve, God's first created human beings, Adam and Eve, and they were naked and unashamed in Genesis 2, in the garden, living life in communion with God, living life in kind of this flourishing way where there was no shame, where there was no guilt, where they didn't have any gap between them and God. And yet when sin breaks in, when they listen to the serpent, when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil— As the Bible tells us, shame and guilt immediately enter the story. And how do they react to that? They are now naked and ashamed. How do they react? They make a covering. They hide themselves with fig leaves. When God comes into the picture, when he walks uh, up to Adam and Eve, they hide behind bushes. They hide behind trees. They know that there is a gap between who they are and who they're supposed to be. And so they put up a cover. They offer something that can make up for that difference. This is where we get the idea of sacrifice. A sacrifice is a peace offering. It says, I know I'm not enough. I know that there's something wrong with me. If I can just, if you will just accept this on my behalf, maybe you can forgive or look over or dismiss that thing about me that I know is reprehensible, the thing about me that deserves judgment. I think it's really interesting in this story. I don't know if y'all ever noticed this. But we don't ever hear God command Adam, or we don't ever hear God command Cain and Abel to sacrifice. Like later in the Bible, I'm reading uh, the book of Exodus right now, God commands very specifically that Israel would sacrifice and how they would sacrifice. But here in the Bible, Genesis 4, it is Cain and Abel's instinct to sacrifice. They can't help but kind of offer something. And I think this is the same for us. We are all, by human nature, know that we're fallen and that we need to offer something. We need to have a sacrifice to present if we are going to be accepted. It works for any situation like that. So think, think about this. Like, you know that in order to get into grad school, that you couldn't just kind of just show up and be yourself. You have to stack up things on your resume in college so that they'll accept you. You have to show up to the interview, kind of like dress nice, presentable, put on your best self as you've heard. You know that you can't just show up and show them your weakest parts, your worst parts and get accepted. You need to make an offering. Uh, On your first date, you probably wanna wear your best outfit. If you're a guy, you probably wanna pay so that, you know, that's your offering. Maybe you'll be accepted. A little tidbit about my relationship, my dating life. My first date, no lie, I took my grandfather's red Corvette. I took Kristen out in my grandfather's red Corvette. That was my peace offering. Um, Nine and a half years later, still accepted. Okay. Um, There's more on that later. The notion of sacrifice, this idea of we have to put something forward that's better so that the worst of us can be okay. This notion of sacrifice is just this idea that we all have in the back of our heads. Like, if you can just look at my beauty, if you can look at my intelligence, if you can look at my humor, maybe it will distract you. 
Maybe it will let you look over all the things about me that I don't want you to see. This is what Cain and Abel were doing. This is where sacrifice comes into the picture of God's story. So why is Cain's sacrifice rejected and Abel's accepted? Again, we have to rewind a little bit to Genesis 3. Um, When in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin and they cover themselves. And when God actually confronts them, God kind of places curses on them. They they have to pay for their sin. A payment must be made for their sin. And so he curses uh, Adam, he curses Eve, and he also curses the serpent. There's an interesting curse in the serpent. First off, Eve is cursed that she's going to have pain in childbearing. And later in the serpent's curse, we actually hear that Eve's offspring, yes, she'll have pain in childbearing. Eve's offspring that she struggles to have, though, will end up crushing the head of the serpent. It will crush the head of the serpent. And so when Cain arrives on the scene, this firstborn child of Adam and Eve, what do you think Adam and Eve thought he was? They thought he was the redeemer. They thought he was the one. They thought he was the one that was going to make all of this stuff that they messed up become untrue. Cain's name uh, in Hebrew actually just means I have gotten or I've received. Like Cain was the golden boy. They, they looked at him and they were like, this is our gift. This is our guy. So imagine what it would look like. Maybe some of y'all are firstborns here. Uh, or maybe some of y'all have siblings that are kind of the golden childs in your family. Or maybe y'all are that. Um, Imagine what it would be like growing up knowing you are your parents' favorite. Knowing that nothing that you can do is wrong. Knowing that you're the one that's always going to have their attention, affection. Cain actually takes after his dad. He gets the family business. He's the one that's working the fields. That's why he brings an offering of, of, of the fields. Do you think that affected how he viewed himself? Do you think having this narrative driven into his head that you're the best, you're the redeemer, You're the one that all our hope is in would maybe affect his self-confidence a little bit. I think it would. It says after some time in this story, Cain brought a sacrifice to God. Because even though he knew he was still great, even though some of us still think we're really great, nobody's so arrogant to admit that nothing's wrong with them. So he brings a sacrifice to God. He knows there's at least a little bit of a gap. And he puts his fruits and his vegetables, his work of the field before God. And he says, aren't you so proud of me? I brought the first offering. I'm the one. Look how good I'm being. Look at how I'm upholding all of the kind of standards that my parents set before me. Look at how great my offering is. Won't you just accept it, God? I deserve it. I deserve it. I am Cain, after all. I'm the one that's favored. But God looks at him and rejects it. And it makes Cain mad. It makes Cain mad because he's never been rejected. It makes Cain mad because he has never considered the notion that his performance could not lead to someone overlooking what is bad about him, what is sinful about him. God owed him his love, his attention, his affection. His mercy was able to be attained based on my performance. That's how life works, isn't it? All these other people that I'm with, my my parents, this world, it works. I can just perform and they accept me. They overlook all the bad things about me. God, why don't you do that? He becomes angry. What does that say about where Cain's faith really was? Cain's faith was in himself. 
It was a faith that was turned in on itself, that if I need to get, if I need to bridge the gap between who I am and who I should be, then that is totally within my control. I can do it. I can just create a perfect covering. I can put a resume before God and he will accept it. And perhaps that's why a lot of y'all are in spiritual frustration. That's why I find myself often in spiritual frustration because it is the natural instinct of our pride to think, I deserve to be accepted. Let me just work for it. Let me just put before you all of my good things and hide these other things. But what God says to Cain is, look, you can't work your way out of this mess. You need a better covering. You actually don't have the power in yourself to bridge that gap. So let's get to Abel and see kind of what God does accept as an offering. So the accepted sacrifice. Abel's a really interesting character. Uh, for the author of Hebrews to mention, we hardly get uh, we hardly get anything about Abel in the Bible. His his time in the Bible, um, for lack of better terms, is really short lived, and he never even says a word. The only word that he ever says is this cry after his death that God says he hears. I told you all a little bit about Cain's name and how his parents kind of like he's the one we received, he's the one we've got, he's the best. Abel's name is really interesting, too. It means, it, if you were to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, it's the same word that the, the author of Ecclesiastes use, uses for vanity. That means worthless. It means a vapor, a cloud. Abel literally means you are nothing. So think about how that impacted the way he grew up. He didn't get his dad's business, work in the fields. He got sent off into the, the other fields with the livestock, that dirty, nasty, smelly work. He was an afterthought. He was the younger brother. He was, um, and I hesitate to use any Harry Potter illustration because I feel like I get criticism every time. But he was uh, Harry Potter where Cain was Dudley Dursley. So does that work? We good? Okay. Um, and instead, like, think about what it would feel like to be left out like that, to be looked over like that. To be considered nothing in the eyes of those who are supposed to love you. Cain really had one of two reactions that he could have. He could have gotten angry. He could have gotten bitter. And it's really interesting that the biblical narrative isn't Abel killing Cain. I think I keep messing up their names. Um, Abel killing Cain. We would think that's kind of how it works out. The one who is overlooked is going to get justice. And yet Abel sees his being looked over from his family, not as an occasion for vengeance or to get justice or to take his anger or resentment out. He uses it to get humble. He humbles himself, which leads us to Abel's sacrifice. When it comes for his time to make amends to God, he knows there's a gap. He knows that life is found in doing life before the face of God in relationship with him. And yet he knows that there's something wrong that he has done in order to kind of cause a fracture in that relationship. And when he comes to God, he brings what he has. He brings the, the firstborn of his flock. He brings the fat offerings. But actually Hebrews 11 says he brings even more. He says he brings his faith. He brings his faith. Cain's faith was rooted in his performance. Abel's faith that he brought was rooted in grace. It was rooted in the presumption that I don't have anything to offer God and I, I will put up the best imitation of what I think 
will bridge the gap between me and God. It's the firstborn. It's the most expensive thing I have. But really what brings me here is that I need you to, make, to bridge that gap. I need you to make up for what I lack. Cain wasn't, or Abel wasn't looking to the contents of his sacrifice for God to forgive him. He was looking to the quality of his heart, saying, God, if you have it in your heart to forgive me, if you have it in your heart to mend this relationship, I'm not gonna try to perform my way out of it. I'm not gonna try to pride my way out of it. I'm only trusting in your ability to bridge that gap. Later uh, in Hebrews, we'll talk about King David, but King David writes this in Psalm 51, and it really reveals what God wants in sacrifice. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. When Abel was confronted with the reality that he, he wasn't who he should be, when he looked in the mirror and he had a sober, honest moment, his reaction was to say, I need a better covering. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can manage. There's nothing I can perfect that makes me clean. I need a better covering. I actually need God. I, God, I need you to make your way to me because I can't make the way. And this is exactly the character of God. I want us to see this. Like This is who God is. God does not want us to bring our manicured, impressive, accomplished selves to him. God wants our weakness. He wants our humility. He wants our hunger. He wants our vulnerability. Did y'all know that like the moral of the Cain and Abel story is not bring your best to God and maybe he'll accept you? The moral of the story is bring your worst. Bring your worst to God because your only hope is his grace. Cain or Abel didn't bring anything really but his emptiness. He was trusting in the sacrifice, in the sacrifice, that God would treat that sacrifice as if it was him so that he could be approved of. Which brings me to the last point, uh, a better sacrifice or the better sacrifice. So you might be thinking to yourself like, man, we were gonna do Cain and Abel. I thought, Austin, I thought you were gonna talk about the murder. Like, let's get some true detective stuff going on in here. This is a, this is a really juicy story. This is the time where we get to the murder. Um, and this story, this murder is just so interesting. There's a lot of layers to it. Um, as true detective would tell you, there's always layers to a murder. But anyway, if y'all remember in Genesis three, maybe I'll just quote Genesis three a billion times tonight. But if y'all remember in Genesis three, or it was actually Genesis two, God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the knowledge of the tree and good of, of good, knowledge of the tree of good and evil, but because he said, you will surely die. And the serpent in Genesis three comes up to them and says, you won't surely die. And we're kind of waiting for the hammer to drop once they eat the fruit or once they eat of the tree, aren't we? Like we're waiting for God to get retribution on his people because they disobeyed him. Do y'all find it interesting that the first human death we see in Genesis is not God taking out retribution on man. It is man taking retribution out on man. You will surely die was a prophecy of you will be totally corrupted so much so that you will turn on yourself. You will forget how to love. You will be divorced from my character. Your character will be totally corrupted. And this is what Cain did. Cain turns, when he, when he can't justify himself with his performance, what does he do? He turns and he eliminates the competition. 
I actually think this is the second sacrifice that Cain brings. The second sacrifice that Cain brings is Abel. It's Abel. Because when he couldn't perform his way out of, uh, out of his problem, when he couldn't perform his way out of his shame, out of his guilt, what does he do? He turns sideways. He turns sideways. This is what we all do, isn't it? Like, if we can't be the best, we need to eliminate the best, don't we? This is why when we gossip, when we tear other people down, this is why when we love to rejoice in people's failures, they're usually the people that we see ourselves in. They're usually the people that we wish we could be. And so their failures mean a great deal to us. Us cutting them down means a great deal to us because what do we need? We want them and their failure to stand in between us and our sin, our weakness, our need to be covered. They're our sacrifice. They're our atonement. We know we need another person to die if we're gonna live. We need a better covering. Um, But God calls out Cain, basically saying like, hey, you know this doesn't work. You know, you can try your best to perfect yourself, be the best person, get the best resume, get the best reputation. You can try your best to then get cynical and cut everyone down around you so that you can feel a little bit better about yourself. This is kind of the cycle of how we usually try to justify ourselves. We're either trying to be perfect or we're making sure everybody else knows they're not. But God says, you know, you can't do this. You can't hide. I'm not going to let you hide. Abel's blood is crying out to me. Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You may be able to hide it from your friends that you're, that you're guilty, that, you have a, that, that you're full of shame. You may be able to hide from your parents that you're really not who you present yourself to be, but you can't hide from me. I hear Abel's blood. I'm well acquainted with your guilt. And what does Abel's blood cry out for? Abel's blood, I think, cries out for justice. It cries out for judgment. It cries out for what we should have based on how we treat others, based on how we treat God in our arrogance, in our attempts to justify ourselves. And we're asked, we're we're kind of left with the question of the Bible. How is God going to answer Abel's cry for blood or for justice? How is God going to answer Abel's cry for justice? What's he going to do with Cain? Because that's, I'm really invested in that question because the more I look at Cain, the more I see me. What's he going to do? What we see in the Bible, what we see in the Gospels, what we see in Jesus Christ, is he doesn't answer it how we think. Instead of shouts of vengeance, instead of coming with his wrath, he answers Abel's cry with tears of his own. When Jesus is headed into Jerusalem, he is headed into um, ultimately what his fate will be. His own people, the people he loves, will uh, accuse him, and then convict him, and then crucify him, uh, even though he's innocent. And as soon as he walks in Jerusalem, Luke says that he weeps over the city. He looked at his people, trying to justify themselves, trying to make sacrifices, trying to cover up, and doing everything but asking for grace. He looks at his people, he looks at us, and he weeps. It moves him to compassion. Compassion. And as he weeps, what's in his mind is that he is going to become that sacrifice. He is going to become the perfect covering. Hebrews 12, 24, this is Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. Uh, It says this, it says, The murder of Jesus, unlike Abel's, which was a homicide that cried out for vengeance, the murder of Jesus, 
became a cry of grace. Became a cry of grace. I'll kind of close with, um, I'll close with going back to my first date story. Um, so the Corvette obviously impressed Kristen. Y'all can ask her. It was amazing. Um, the fancy dinner, definitely. She was like, this is what my life's going to be. And little did she know. Um, yeah, we ate pot roast tonight. Um, and I asked her on a second date. And, you know, when, when she finally said yes, after a lot of begging, um, I could have assumed, I, you know, like, I was, all, I was nervous that she wasn't going to say yes to a second date because I didn't know if I was enough. I didn't know if I put, put forward a perfect covering, you know, and cover myself up enough. Um, but what I realized after she said yes to the second date is it really didn't matter what I did um, because my friends were actually her friends. And that's the cheat code if you want to get a date. Make friends with the girl you want, or all the girl's friends that you want to go out with. My friends were her friends, and she roomed with them, and they were constantly telling her, like, he's great. This would be great. Y'all keep going out. Y'all are perfect. Even when I wasn't working, they were working on my behalf, mediating for me. They were my advocate. In a, in a much greater sense, this is exactly what Jesus is doing with the Father right now. You want to know how you can be assured that when you look at God and when God looks at you, you won't be, you won't see the gap, but you will actually see his smile. You don't want to be constantly identified with your guilt, with your shame, with your sin, always seeking either to busy yourself out of it or to tear others down so you feel better about it, to hide it. You need to look to Jesus because what Jesus is doing right now is he's telling the father, Look at the sacrifice. He's showing all of his merit, all of his blood. He's saying, look, don't answer Abel's cry for justice with anything other than my cry for grace, my sacrifice. What does it look like to be a Christian? What is faith? Faith is not bringing your best to God and hoping it gets accepted. It's bringing your worst. It's bringing your worst and realizing that Jesus accepts you based on his sacrifice and not your own. Which is why I kind of titled it Receiving and Resting. We think faith is this bringing and doing and performing. Faith is passive in a lot of ways. It's receiving and resting in what Jesus has done with his life, death, and resurrection for you. And this is where life is found. This is where joy starts. And that's an invitation. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Um, we pray that it would fall on us like good news. We pray that either for the, the first or the thousandth time that someone has heard it in this room, that you would speak to them in the ways that they're trying to outperform or um, outcompare their way to your smile. Uh, I pray that for me too. I pray that you would draw us to Jesus to see his sacrifice as perfect and acceptable in God's sight and that we would rest and receive that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.